If you have a copy of God's Word, turn to John, the Gospel of John. Today we'll be in chapter 19, and we'll be going through verses 16 through 20 on this Reformation Day. If you don't have a Bible, please grab, just grab one in the pew. There should be one there in front of you. And I just snagged one and looked it up, and it's on page 625. So you'll want to grab that and follow along. Um, this will be much better for you and, and much more beneficial if you have a copy of God's Word there in front of you and you're able to follow along. All right, so if you have a Bible, please go ahead and stand. As you're standing, I, I guess I'll tell you, we're going to finish John within the next five weeks, maybe, we'll see, five or six weeks. I don't know how it's going to go, but it's finally here. Uh, we've been going through John for some time now, and now the end has finally come. So here we are. This is the beginning uh, of the end of John's Gospel. All right, if you found your place, uh, please hear the word of the Lord. John 19, beginning in verse 16. Jesus has just finished his trial before Pilate. He's being handed over to be crucified. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather... That this man said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus knowing all was now fulfilled, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, it is Reformation Day. Um, but how would you explain what being reformed means? This is a question that was posed at a Ligonier conference, and, and sitting up on the platform was uh, the late, great uh, R.C. Sproul, and, you know, the usual suspects like, uh, I think, Lawson and MacArthur and Alistair Begg. So someone from the audience posed this question, and Sproul's reading off these questions, and you know, he gets a chuckle. And he says, what does it mean to be reformed? I think this one's for you, Alistair. Now, Alistair Begg, the, you know, the thick Scottish accent, quick-witted, always a great sense of humor. He says, well, it's like this. You start reading your Bible, then you become biblical, then you're reformed. And everybody laughs, and you know, Sproul laughs, and he says, you, you have to understand, this man likes... He likes simple. And there's really something to that, though. It's funny, but you start reading your Bible. That's where it begins. And that's, George talked about that early at the beginning of the service. Then you become biblical. Then you're reformed. I would add one more thing, I think, to this, to this short list. And that would be what actually happened at the cross. And there are many people who claim to be biblical, but they don't have what actually happened at the cross right. And so I don't think they can... Say they are reformed. What actually happened when Jesus died? Did, did Jesus actually do something? 
Did he actually accomplish salvation or did he potentially do something? Did he save people or did he die to make people savable? I think this is at the very heart of, of the Reformation, um, which occurred 504 years ago. Of course, Luther famously said, uh, the linchpin of the Reformation, uh, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, that's the heart of the Reformation, and he's right. But I think we can go one step beyond. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone is the heart of the Reformation, but you have to ask the question, why? Why is that the heart of the Reformation? And at the root of that answer will be this. What did Jesus do when he died? Because if you don't have this right, then there is no salvation by faith alone. So I think this is at the very heart of the Reformation. Did Jesus do something? Did he accomplish salvation? Or did he potentially do something and make people savable? What happened at the cross? Vastly important to understand this, and I think we have our answer here in our text, but what happened at the cross? Perhaps an illustration for you to give you a, a kind of a synopsis of the ideas that are out there. The uh, Catholics, Roman Catholics, would teach that Jesus' death on the cross grants people his righteousness in this sense, that it places them in a position where they are able to build their own bridge to God. Let's use the bre- the, this bridge illustration. That's popular today when you do evangelism. So Catholics would say Jesus' death grants you the ability to build your own bridge to God. So you're infused uh, with God's grace at your baptism, and you spend the rest of your life erecting this bridge, of course, one life is not enough, so the doctrine of purgatory, but eventually your justification comes when you finally make it, so he died in order to give you the ability to work out your salvation and build your own righteousness. Half of the Protestant church would believe something like this, Jesus' death builds a bridge all the way to God. It's there, but you've got to walk across it. Reformed Protestants believe Jesus' death builds a bridge to God in his person. But you're lying on one side of the bridge dead. So he, he kneels down and breathes into you the breath of life. And you come alive, but you're still limping and you're broken because we live in this fallen world. And so he throws your arm around his neck and grabs you by the waist and begins to limp with you across the bridge. And the further you go across the bridge, which is Christ, the further you go in Christ, the less you begin to limp. And by the time you make it across the bridge, you're standing upright and you look just like Christ. So today this gets to the question, what happened at the cross? Is that just a good theological idea? Can we arrive at it from this text? I think we can. And it just so happens, it is the pro- it's just the providence of God. I've been preaching through John for years now. I don't even know how many years it's been so many. <laughs> Some of you probably can't even remember either. Uh, and we just so happen to land on this passage. Jesus says these words, it is finished. And we can ask the question, what does he even mean when he says that? And so here we are today. It gets to this question, what happened at the cross? We just need to look at the text and we'll find our answer. Remember where we are in John's gospel. This is, this is, this is it. We're at the final six hours of Jesus' life now. Our text today encompasses those six hours. Uh, prior to this, Jesus has gone through his trials. That's where we were last time in John's gospel. We looked at his mock trial, his his. his Illegal arrest, his mock trial, false trial between the Jewish authorities. And then we spent a great deal of time of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the the Roman authority. And we could see that he did not want to crucify Jesus. He even declared numerous times that he's not guilty. But Pontius Pilate caves to political pressure and turns Jesus over to be crucified. And that's where we find ourselves today. And what will happen as we move through this text over the next several weeks, we really see kind of this 
pattern emerged, which is mirrored in the Apostles' Creed and in the teachings uh, of the New Testament, that Jesus was crucified, he died, he was buried, and he rose from the grave. And all of them are important and have significance. And so today we come to this passage where Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. And we're able to get at this question. Now, as we're doing that, as we're moving through the text, if you're taking notes, we're going to see three, there's going to be three things we we see. I don't have a a fancy outline, a proposition statement, but there's kind of, I I think there's three main ideas we're able to grasp as we look through this. So number one is the meticulous sovereignty of God, if you're taking notes. The meticulous sovereignty of God, the perfect love of Jesus, and the finished work of Christ. Taking notes, the meticulous sovereignty of God, the perfect love of Jesus, and the finished work of Christ. Did he make men savable when he died, or did he die to save men? And this is the difference that it makes, I think, that it makes in your life. You either have the very heart of the gospel, which is what happened when Jesus died, You either have that right this morning, sitting here, or you have it wrong. There's not an in-between. This is not one of those things where you can budge either way. You either have the very heart of it right, and if you have it right, then you can, by faith alone, receive the righteousness of Christ and be made right with God. Or if you have it wrong this morning, well, you're just building a bridge. You're building a bridge to nowhere. It's a bridge, bridge of despair a bridge of sorrow, a bridge that will only leave you worn out and weary and tired. And many people, many people have that view. I mean, it's, it's clear. I got to reference TikTok for George because I, I know he loves it when I do. I'm not endorsing it because there's a lot of bad stuff on TikTok, but it gives me a window into the culture. And there's a, there's a few people that, you know, you'll, you'll just randomly will pop up and this, this one were these two ladies joking about their upbringing in evangelical churches. And they joked about how every summer uh, they would get resaved. Of course, they're totally pagan now. They're non-believers. But they joke and make fun of the church. And that really breaks my heart because you know what it tells me? is These people are able to grow up in church their entire life and never understand what Jesus meant when he said it's finished. They don't understand the heart of the gospel. And hopefully that's not you today. But if it is you today, this is the difference it makes. If we just listen to this text and look at Jesus' heart and what he says, then you'll understand what is at the very heart of the gospel. Did he die to make you savable or did he die to save? And we'll see today, again, the meticulous sovereignty of God, the perfect love of Jesus, and the finished work of Christ. So let's jump in here today. First, with the meticulous sovereignty of God. Now, if you take your eyes back to your text, which you should do, take your eyes back to the text. And in 16, going through verses 24, we see the meticulous sovereignty of God. There's great significance in the details. There are several details that just unfold in this passage. It contains a series of details. And I'm convinced that these details are here for a reason. They, they speak very clearly and very loudly one thing, that this is God's sacrifice. God is a God of meticulous sovereignty, and He's the one doing this. Meticulous sovereignty. What do I mean by meticulous? Meticulous means showing great attention to detail. You know, from the time you come into basic training, that's all you're going to be drilled down into your skull is attention to detail. Because most of the time in our life, we can just move on through life without paying very close attention to detail. But you just certainly can't do so in, in, the, in the army, right? Because things can be dangerous if you don't pay attention to detail. So you've got to pay attention to detail, and you should pay attention to the detail that is in the passage. Because it doesn't have to be here. But it is, and it tells you that God is a God of meticulous, detailed sovereignty. He's not just a God who is sovereign over big things, which we affirm that he is. God is a God who is sovereign over big things, the setting up of kings, the changings of nations, all of these things. 
The Bible also affirms he's this God of the sovereignty over small things. A sparrow can't die without God's permission or plan. You, the hairs of your head are numbered according to God. Even things that seem meaningless and absolute, by, by absolute chance operate under the, according to the sovereignty of God. Have you considered that? Things that seem totally meaningless and governed by chance, like the casting of dice. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is a God of meticulous sovereignty. Chance and luck don't exist. Chance and luck do not exist. There is only the sovereignty of God and the providence by which he governs all of history from beginning to end to his desired ends and purposes. Chance and God cannot exist simultaneously. And yet many people, perhaps even you, you might just live your life thinking that God cares about big things, but there are all kinds of things in the world that he doesn't. And these things just happen by chance. There's no room for that. Chance and God cannot exist simultaneously. Now, a clarification. I don't mean chance according to statistic, statistics, right? As a measurement for probabilities. That's not what I mean. I mean chance as some type of thing that can produce outcomes. It's where we get our word luck from. Sproul has a great quote on this. He wrote a whole book on this called Not a Chance. You could check it out. This is what he says about chance. The mere existence of chance is enough to rip God from his cosmic throne. Chance does not need to rule. It does not need to be sovereign. If it exists as a mere impotent, humble servant, it leaves God not only out of date but out of a job. If chance exists in the frailest possible form, God is finished. If chance exists in any size, shape, or form, God cannot exist. And then we come to this passage today. There are many people that would just see in this passage a collection of details that are there, maybe meaningless, or just there by chance. But these details are there to tell us that there is a God of meticulous sovereignty, and this is His sacrifice for sin. There are five details I want to show, show you this morning quickly. So under your first main heading, there are five subpoints. Five details that show us and to communicate to us this idea of God's meticulous sovereignty. Number one, Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified, and our text says he grows out carrying his own cross. He goes out carrying his own cross. It's, a, it's the common practice of Romans when they crucify someone that on the convicted criminal they would place the cross beam upon their back and they would carry the cross, they would carry this wood on their back to the place of their own execution. Other Gospels would tell us that Jesus was so weak from the severe beating and lashing he got from the Roman whips that he was unable to carry it all the way. So the Romans commanded a man named Simon to assist him and to carry his cross. But he, our text tells us that Jesus goes out burying, bearing upon his back the wood of his cross. To some, an insignificant detail. This is just what happens in history. This is just what the Romans did. But the question is, why did the Romans, in my mind, develop this form of execution and develop this practice? There's no reason to, um, other than their own cruelty. But I don't see it as, as an insignificant detail. right? I see God in control of everything, meticulously, as it surrounds Jesus Christ. Because in our Bible, we see something very similar happening in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, you remember the story of what's happening. Abraham is told by God that he's to take his child, who is the child of the covenant. He's his only son whom he loves. That should ring in your ear. That's the language John uses of Jesus. His only son whom he loves. And there Abraham is told to sacrifice his son as a sacrifice to God. So he takes Isaac out to the place of the sacrifice. And when they arrive... He takes the wood of the sacrifice and he places it on Isaac's back. And he tells him to carry the wood. And the son says, well, here's the wood. Where's the sacrifice? 
And his dad says, don't worry, God will provide his own sacrifice. And you know how the story unfolds, don't you? They go up the hill. Isaac is laid down onto the wood. And just before he strikes the fatal blow, the angel of the Lord steps in and stops him. Abraham uh, looks to the side, and what does he see? He sees God's sacrifice to die in the place of Isaac. And I think we can't miss this, how God communicates to us through meticulous detail. Here's Jesus, who is the only son whom God loves with all of his heart. And he goes out and he's carrying the wood of the sacrifice upon his back. But there's no substitute for Jesus when he arrives at the place of sacrifice. There's no substitute for Jesus because Jesus is the substitute. Jesus is the sacrifice. There's no accidents. There's no chance. God is communicating to you clearly, this is my sacrifice for sins. Second, Jesus is crucified at the place of the skull. In Aramaic, Golgotha. In Latin, which is recorded by other Gospels, Calvary. What does it mean? John tells us it means the place of the skull. A little side note for you. I used to serve at a church called Calvary Baptist Church. I'm sure you've all seen a Calvary Baptist Church, a very common name for Baptist churches. Calvary Baptist Church. How about for a church plant, we go with this, because Calvary and Golgotha, they mean the place of the skull. What about for a church plant, we go with the place of the skull. You can, you know, you can be out inviting your friends and be like, where do you go to church? Why don't you just come to church with me? It's a great church. What's your church called? The place of the skull. <laughs> All right? How weird that we, we, do, we adopt this name for, for churches, Calvary. It sounds better if we change it out of English. I go to Calvary Baptist. The place of the skull. To some absolutely insignificant detail. It's just what it was called. Why is it called that? Well, apparently the rock formations look like a skull. Now, people say they don't know exactly the spot where he was, but there's a place there outside, right outside where the temple is, Temple Mount there. You can look it up on Google. There is a place where a rock formation looks like a human skull. It's really creepy. And many people believe that is the spot where Jesus was crucified, the place of the skull. And some will say, it's just, just insignificant detail. You know, over thousands of years, rain, erosion, whatever, just, you know, we're prone to see things. And this is why it's called that. But they, they called it the place of the skull. This is where he's crucified. Those who believe in the meticulous sovereignty of God, I think it's impossible to miss the echoes of Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, God promised, God made a promise to Adam and Eve, but he also made a promise to the dragon. Satan, the serpent, the dragon, whatever name you will, the one who, through his wickedness and temptation plunged this world into darkness and despair. God, had pro God promised that he was going to raise up the seed of the woman and he was going to crush his head. Jesus is crucified at a place called the skull. And this is the place where the work of Satan was destroyed. This is the place where the great dragon's head was smashed. It's called the place of the skull. You can't make it up. It's not an insignificant detail. It didn't happen by chance because chance doesn't do anything. It's a meticulous sovereignty of God communicating to you in so many ways. I'm doing this. I am faithful to my promises. I always do what I say. This is my sacrifice. Jesus bears his own wood. He goes to the place of the skull. Third, Jesus is crucified between two criminals, one on either side. So there are three crucifixions here. And Jesus is, unlike these men, these men are criminals. And the word used in the other Gospels is that of an insurrectionist. Likely these are the comrades of Barabbas. These men are guilty. Unlike Jesus, these are guilty insurrectionists worthy of the death penalty. Some say, insignificant detail, Romans crucified people all the time. 
The prophet Isaiah spoke of this hundreds of years ago through the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 53, 12, where he says that the Messiah would be numbered with transgressors as the wrath of God crushes him. Jesus does not die alone. He dies with lawbreakers on either side. And even more clear, he dies on Barabbas's cross. God communicates clearly his meticulous sovereignty and that Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53, that he is numbered with transgressors. And the theological lesson is so clear. Jesus in the place of the guilty. To some in insignificant detail, meaningless, but to me and many others, we see the meticulous sovereignty of God. He's innocent, but he's dying for sinners. Fourth, what Pilate chose to write. Look at verses 19 through 22. Look what Pilate chose to write. In Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek, so in the three main, Latin, the legal language of the day, Aramaic, the regional language, Greek, the common language of the Roman Empire, it is written that Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, right? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And the Jews, they take great offense at this, because remember, they've brought him to Pilate denying they have a king. That's the last thing they said. We have no king but Caesar. We looked at that a few weeks ago. They brought him there, and they applied this pressure. Now, I think, obviously, what happens is Pilate writes better than he knows. In his mind, probably, he's, he's getting back at them. I didn't want to crucify him. Remember that political pressure they put on him? You're no friend of Caesar if you don't go through with this. So they back him into a corner where he has to do it. But he didn't want to, so he says, okay, I'm, I'm going to put on there his crime, because that's the common practice. The crime is put above the cross, and he put the king of the Jews. And they're like, no, no, say he said he was the king of the Jews. He's like, no, no, I said what I said. He's the king of the Jews. So Pilate gets the last laugh. But really, in, in doing so, what we could see is just, hey, this is just the way things happen. Insignificant details. Uh, chance, just, just chance that he wrote this. Or you can see the meticulous sovereignty of God as God is sovereign even over the evil intentions of men because Pilate's intention is to get the last laugh. Listen to what D.A. Carson says about this. It's incredible. He says, God turned Pilate and Caiaphas into prophets. Pilate's malice serves God's ends. The Lord Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews. The cross is the means of his exaltation in the very manner of his glorification. The trilingual notice may serve as a symbol for the proclamation of the kingship of Jesus to the whole world. Thus, the two men most immediately responsible for Jesus' death are unwittingly furthering God's redemptive purposes, unwittingly serving as prophets of the king that they execute. There's no chance. Only the meticulous sovereignty of God ruling over everything. Even the free will of Pontius Pilate. Number five, the detail of Jesus' clothes. There's this section in 23 through 24, this detail of Jesus' clothes. The text reveals that when Jesus was crucified, there's a little squad of Roman soldiers. And probably what they did is they would, they'd be able to collect anything that the people that they killed, they could take whatever they wanted from them. So... If they had jewelry or any clothes, they could strip them. They would be stripped naked, completely naked and crucified. they take their clothes and divide it up, and then they could sell it or do whatever they want with it. It's, uh, part, of, it's part of their job that they got to keep all of that. And the text says that they divided some of Jesus' clothes into four, like there's, there's like a four, there's four of them, so four of them get something. Like he's wearing numerous articles. But this tunic, the one that goes against the skin, you wear it under your cloak, was seamless. It has, it's been woven together. It's got no seams. And so they have a decision. We can, we could, it's apparently expensive to do that, and it's nice fabric, so they could either just tear it into four pieces and hand it out, or they could play a little dice. And so they cast lots for who will get the one item of clothes, right? This one item. 
and to some an insignificant detail. But our text tells us, John tells us, that this happened to fulfill Scripture. See that? This happened that Scripture would be fulfilled. And then he quotes Psalm 22, which John tells us Psalm 22 is about Jesus. We read the whole thing a little bit ago. Remember that? That whole psalm we read. And you could probably clearly see, though David wrote this, it's about Jesus. It's recorded that Jesus quotes Psalm 22 as well, but when he's hanging on the cross in the other Gospels, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many people believe Jesus may have quoted the entire psalm while he hung on the cross. But we see here the mocking of Jesus, all the circumstances surrounded in it, the, the wickedness of this Roman soldiers are not meaningless, and they're not insignificant, they're not governed by chance. They're governed by a God who has meticulous sovereignty, even over what these Roman soldiers would do with Jesus' clothes. It communicates to you that God brought this event about. It's His doing. This is His sacrifice for sin. Now, there may be something more to the seamless clothes. Uh, I'm not entirely sure it is, but I think that it is. I'll share it with you just briefly. Jesus' clothes which are not torn. There is kind of a pattern in the Old Testament of surrounding the kings and garments that are torn. So, for instance, in 1 King 11, the prophet Ahijah tears his garment into 12 pieces, and he gives 10 of them to King Jeroboam, symbolizing the division and the tearing of God's uh, kingdom between Israel and Judah. Then there's the peculiar case of King David cutting off uh, a piece of Saul's cloak or his clothes. But even more clear, I think, and I think there is a good connection to be made, is Samuel and Saul. When Saul becomes unfaithful and becomes clear that God has chosen David and will take the kingdom from Saul, the following takes place. In 1 Samuel 15, 27 through 28, Samuel turned to leave Saul after telling him, Uh, what had happened. But Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And I think maybe we're to see in this that Jesus' tunic is not torn, that the kingdom is not torn from him, though though what appears to be happening is Yes, it's true, God's wrath is going to be poured out upon Jesus. God's plan is to unite God's kingdom around this king. Now, I think there's something there. You're free to choose if there's not. I'm not saying to you 100% that there is. But I still see in that that God is meticulously sovereign over all that is taking place. And it could be that he's even communicating to us through Jesus' clothes not being torn, that they're intact. So I see in all of these details, not chance, not insignificance, but significance. They're all significant. Jesus bears his own wood to the place of the skull. He's numbered with transgressors. The inscription that's written above his head. The casting of lots for his clothes. They're all telling you that God is doing this. So first, the meticulous sovereignty of God. Now the perfect love of Jesus we won't spend a lot of, great deal of time on this, the perfect love of Jesus, but we do need to make some observations and some comments. This is verses 25 through 27, and this is recorded only here in John's Gospel. It's the account of Jesus and what's left of his group, which is really only these four women and his disciple whom he loves, which we know is John, the writer of this Gospel. As Jesus is hanging on the cross in severe agony, there's no one left. Just these, a small group of women, which includes his mother and the disciple whom he loves. We have this exchange between Jesus, his mom, and the disciples, which people really, I think, make way too much of. Uh, they make way too much of it, though there is something to be made of it, I think, as, as we'll see. So let's look at this. Jesus says, 
if you look back there uh, in your text, after the soldiers did these things, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, and he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. So what is this? What is going on? Well, first, let's say what's not going on. What did not happen? Jesus did not at this point make Mary the queen of the church. This is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. This is a big verse for them in their Mariology. Jesus did not entrust his disciple and disciples to his mother. He did not make her the queen of heaven and the mother of the church. And I think that's obvious if you just read what happens. Because the text says that the disciple took her into his house. Right? So that's not what's happening. Um, this is, again, foundation of the Reformation. We have no other mediator. Mary's not a mediator for us. She is not co-redemptrix. Right? She is not sinless. She's not the mother of the church. And she's not, most assuredly, Jesus did not put the disciples under her care and authority. What's happening is just the opposite. And it's obvious in the text. Jesus is taking care of his mother. That's what's happening. And we get a glimpse again of Jesus' true humanity and his perfection as he lived perfectly under God's law and he loved his mom and in all of that agony and pain and suffering, he was thinking about others he was thinking about his mom, and he wanted to take care of her. Remember, Jesus is the, the eldest. His dad has apparently died by this point, and it's Jesus' responsibility to take care of his mother. And in the greatest agony of his life, that's what he does. Jesus is here honoring his father and his mother, and in doing so, honoring his heavenly father. Exodus twenty twelve, right? The fifth commandment. And Jesus is the oldest brother. He looks after his mom. Now, what is kind of radical about this, what he does, is Jesus has other brothers. He's got brothers at this, po at this point. They're adult brothers. And we know from going through this gospel that his brothers are not in Jesus' group. Now, this beginning, this group is the beginnings of the church. They're not in it. They're skeptics. They don't believe in Jesus. Not at this point. Post-resurrection will be another story, but they don't at this point. And in Jesus' mind, I think you have to just grasp the radical nature of this. Jesus gives his mom away to a non-blood relative. And that non-blood relative takes a woman that's not his mom as his own mom into his house to take care of her as a widow till she dies. To the outside world, you know, they, the outside world believes blood is thicker than water. You've heard that. Uh, and what does that mean? That means that no matter what, your blood, flesh and blood, your relatives, brother, sister, cousins, uncles, father, mother, grandparents, they are the most important people in your life. Blood is thicker than water. But I think what we see is Jesus flipping all of that on its head with this community that he is now he is now created through his sacrifice. That people that aren't related by blood are more important to you than those that are your blood. Brothers and sisters in Christ are your true brothers and sisters. How else can he give his mom away to someone that's not his blood relative? In Matthew 12, 46 through 50, we've got a glimpse of this, and we can see it play out in Acts as people will sell their possessions to take care of other people in the church. But in Matthew 12, 46, we see this. Uh, while he's still speaking, some people come to him and they say, hey, your uh, brother and your mother's are out mother is outside. And he says, he points around to the disciples, these are my mother and my brother and my sister. Remember that? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus gives his mother to his true brother. This is a significant shift in our understanding of 
humanity, really. That those united in Christ are closer than blood. Now, you may think me morbid for this, but I'm just going to share it with you. As Philip got pneumonia, um, it's just the military planning in me. I began to wonder, what if Philip dies of COVID? Who could we ask in the church, and how much could they give a month to take care of his wife? That may sound radical to you because, you know, that we're trained. We've got life insurance for a reason. We have this for a reason. But in reality, if we want to be what I think Jesus has created the community to be, like that's got to be there, right? You've got to know if something happens to me and I die, someone's taking care of my wife. My kids aren't going to grow up without a male father figure in their life. Someone's going to take them in and become that to them. And I think that's, that's what we're to be, and we see it. So we don't see Mary as becoming the queen of the church. What we see is a little preview of Jesus' community that he creates through his sacrifice. And in so doing, we see his perfect love. Jesus never stopped loving perfectly. He is a human. He's true God, and he's true man. And the last thing he does is take care of his mom. And I think that's it. So we see the meticulous providence of God. We see the perfect love of Jesus. Now, finally, we see the finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ. It's kind of fun to look up famous last words. Um, did that this week. Famous last words. Imagine you're about to die, and you know you're about to die. So you're going to choose your words carefully. Your, your words are going to really carry what's important to you. What is at your very heart? You want it to come out, right? Some last words of wisdom, some expression of love, something. Last words are interesting to read. There's a lot of them. Uh, George and I were talking about this week because he used last words in a sermon like two or three years ago. So we're looking through some of these. Um, I got one I just got to share for you. This is a serious part of the sermon, but I just got to share it. I can't help it. James French was executed right here in Oklahoma. James French's last words were, how about this for a headline, French fries. So you can kind of get a glimpse into his criminal mind, right? I'm not taking seriously, even to death, what has occurred, but I just couldn't resist sharing it with you. I had a sense of humor. But usually, when the mind's operating normally, you're gonna, what's going to come out is what's important to you, what's on your heart. And so John Wayne, when he, when he died, he turned to his wife and he said, you're my girl, I love you. Uh, T.S. Eliot, the writer, he, uh, his famous last words were just Valerie, his wife. Michelangelo, you know Michelangelo? Michelangelo's last words, Michelangelo, the, the, the artist of the Enlightenment era, the Renaissance artist and architect, his last words were, I'm still learning. I kind of like that. We should always be learning until we die. Leonardo da Vinci's are kind of sad. And I wonder if a lot of people here feel like Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci said this, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. And I wonder how many people die thinking that. I bet, I bet a lot. My work has offended God. It did not reach the quality that it should have. Jesus could never say such words. Jesus could never say that his work fell short. In fact, just the opposite is true. Jesus' last words reveal to us his heart. It's on his mind. It shows us exactly what he's doing, that he knows exactly what he's doing, and it shows us that he knows his work is perfect and complete. And that's totally acceptable to God. So the famous last words of Jesus, there are seven last words or last sayings of Jesus. People do sermon series on these if they just handle them alone. But uh, in the first three hours, it's usually divided first three hours, last three hours. And the first three hours are the first three. He prayed for his enemies. You know, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Second, he made a promise to that criminal that was on one of his sides, the one that was repentant, and asked him to remember him. He made that promise that you'll be with me in paradise. 
Third, he entrusted his mother to his disciple. That was recorded here in our text. And then the second three hours contain four, four more. So number four, there's the cry of desolation, which isn't here in this gospel. Why have you forsaken me? The beginning of Psalm 22. Then there's the cry of physical anguish, I thirst, which is here. Then there's the cry of victory, six, that's six. It is finished, the cry of victory. Then there's seventh, the cry of resignation, into your hands I commit my spirit. So in this last remaining time, we're going to look at uh, the cry of physical anguish and then the cry of victory, because that's what's here in John's gospel. So 28 through 30, Jesus' cry of physical anguish. Jesus knows that he has accomplished all, and there's one more thing to do. This is very interesting to think about. And our text tells us, so in order to fulfill Scripture, Jesus says, I thirst. Now, obviously, we ought to see that Jesus is truly a human being. He is a man. He has lost a tremendous amount of blood. He's about to die. He's moments away, and you become very thirsty. He's very thirsty. Psalm 22 tells us like, that his tongue is stuck to the roof of his mouth. People around him, you know, wagging their heads at him. We read all of that. So Jesus has a cry of physical anguish. He's in incredible physical pain. It's almost all over. But even in that, Jesus says one more thing so that Scripture might be fulfilled. It's incredible to think about this. I thirst. Every detail that occurs in Jesus' life has been happening according to the meticulous plan and sovereignty of God. And yet, this is an interesting dynamic at play in Jesus' life. He is fully aware of that. And he knows he is fulfilling Scripture. Isn't that interesting to think about? He's not just along for the ride, just riding the wave, just riding the wave of God's providence. Here I am at the cross. He's fully aware that everything that's happening is happening according to the meticulous plan of God, but he is actively doing it. He is actively fulfilling Scripture in his ministry. And what's seen here in this last cry of physical anguish, I thirst. It's a vivid reminder of Jesus' active obedience to everything that he must accomplish. And in Jesus' mind, Psalm 69, 21 must be fulfilled, which says, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And so he cries out, I thirst. And the soldiers bend down, and they give him sour wine to drink. By sheer chance? Of course not. Because God is in control of everything that's taking place, and Jesus is actively fulfilling everything that is taking place. And we aren't to miss that. Every part of what happened to Jesus is both a predetermined plan by the Father and is happening under the direct, purposeful intent of the man Jesus Christ. It's incredible to think about. And that will bring us now to the last words here recorded in this gospel. It's the cry of victory. It is finished. So he cries out, it is finished. He gives up his spirit and dies. Now these are perhaps the most important words, I think, of Jesus that we can understand. These three words, we have to ask, what did he mean when he said that? My life is over. No, no, there's significant meaning. It is finished. What does he mean and what is it? This is one of these places, these points where the meaning of words is very important, but the nuance of it can get a little bit lost in English. I think you can get it there. Like if you just read all of John's gospel in one sitting, you're going to get it, what he's saying. But if you just take it like we are, there's been a break, you might not get it. The nuance might be lost in the English. To telestai, it denotes the carrying out of a task. So a task has been accomplished, and this can apply to any task. But there's a very interesting um, overtone that exists in the religious world. When this word is used in that sense, in the religious context, it carries out the idea of fulfilling one's religious obligations. 
fulfilling one's religious obligations. So Jesus has a religious task he's been given by the Father that he's been sent here to do. He's obligated to do it, and he did it, and he accomplished it. So Jesus accomplishes that which he was sent to do. He's finished it. So he says, it is finished. So now a question to ask. He accomplished a task. He was sent here to do what is the task? That's all you have to simply ask. What task was Jesus sent here to do? And I think the New Testament tells us so clearly. The Gospel of John tells us so clearly, but so does all of the Gospels together and the rest of the New Testament. Jesus was sent here by the Father to actively obey on our behalf, to live a life we could not live, to live under God's law perfectly. So he's sent here to live on our behalf. He came to live for us and he came to die for us, to bear sins in his body on this tree. He came to glorify his father, representing his father to the people, revealing his father to the people and living in their place and dying for them. So John 17, 6, when Jesus prays, he says, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. He was sent to reveal God, and he's done that. John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. He was sent to glorify the Father in all that he did, and he did that, and he accomplished that. He's glorified the Father perfectly, without sin, obeying everything, never failing, never wavering, always obedient. Now, when Reformed theologians talk about this, they, try, they kind of divide Jesus' work that he's done to glorify the Father and to accomplish that work into two areas, just so you can think about it, right? They're not really separated. They go hand in hand. But one is the active obedience of Christ and one the passive. So first, the active obedience. Active obedience of Jesus. And this is important. This idea of active obedience is that Jesus lived perfectly as a human for you, for his people. See, God could have just forgiven sins, right? If God just takes Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God could forgive you. He could say, you're forgiven, fine. It, it, it's all good now. But now, how do, you, how do you come into relationship with God, right? That's the question. Because you can never obey God's law perfectly, even if he forgives you. And what God requires for fellowship with himself is absolute perfection. So in comes the act of obedience of Christ, that he lived perfectly on our behalf. He obeyed and fulfilled God's law perfectly. So everything that he did matters. He has to be obedient all the way up to even this point on the cross. His act of obedience is happening here. He's being faithful, and that counts to our behalf. What is required is perfect righteousness. That's the term that is used often. This is, the the this is where the theological term imputation comes in, or to be imputed with the righteousness of Jesus. Luther would call it an alien righteousness, if you stick with the Reformation idea. It's that you cannot come into God's presence in your own righteousness. It's flawed. So as a gift, you get the righteousness of Jesus. And this idea is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you see, as Jesus is doing this work, which he says he accomplishes, two things are happening. Your sin is placed upon Jesus. It's imputed to him so that he can die, bearing the wrath of God, making satisfaction. But something else is happening. God is imputing to all of Jesus' people who would believe in him by faith, the perfect obedience of Jesus. So now that when God looks at any of you, right, any of you who still struggle daily and you're fighting in this fallen flesh nature and in this world, right, you don't have to like get resaved every single summer because God has given to you as a gift the righteousness of his son. And that's all wrapped up in his work. Now, he is on the cross, and he is dying on the cross, so the question comes, what is he doing here? What is Jesus' idea of what he's doing on a cross? This is often called a pass, is passive obedience. Peter says he's bearing sins. 
This is 1 Peter 2.24. But listen how Jesus talks about this. Jesus says in John 10, 11 through 15, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Right? I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. In his dying, Jesus is dying in the place of a people. It's a substitution. It is for his sheep. And in doing so, he secures everything necessary to bring that to completion and raise those people up on the last day. That's all happening, right? There's nothing lacking when Jesus says, it is accomplished to be fulfilled later by you to accomplish it. It is accomplished means everything necessary to bring you to the end. This is found in John 6, 37 through 40, where he says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And later he says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Jesus actually bore the sins of his people on the cross. He made satisfaction for sin. And it's a great demonstration of his love and the Father's love. And Jesus tells his disciples that, No greater love has anyone than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. And he's speaking about himself. Jesus' death accomplishes something. And that is what he believes. And that's the only thing that matters. Because what he believes is what is. Not what theologians will speculate about. Not what philosophers will try to match with human freedom and God's sovereignty. What does Jesus understand he's doing? He understands that he is saving a people from their sins. And that's all that matters. He accomplished something. He fulfilled a religious obligation given to him by the Father that he would die and save a people for himself. He came to save sinners. He didn't come to make them savable. And this, of course, was told to us by the angel as he's speaking to his father. You will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is at the very heart of the Reformation. Did Jesus die to save sinners, or did he die to make them savable? And I think it's clear that Jesus says he died to save. Everything necessary to be reconciled to God. He lived your life for you that God requires, and he died for sinners, actually purchasing them for himself. He saves. He doesn't try to. He doesn't do his best. He doesn't give you the righteousness necessary to carry it out yourself. He dies to save. The meticulous sovereignty of God, we saw that today. We saw the perfect love of Jesus, and we saw the finished work of Christ. And it is finished. Nothing left for you to accomplish. And this is the entire reason why salvation and faith, faith alone, in Christ alone, is anything. Without the finished work of Christ, there is no faith alone. It's the very heart of the Reformation. It's why we're here today. So what happened at the cross? Let's go back to that bridge illustration, because I don't want anybody to leave not clear. Is what the Catholics say true. Did Jesus die on the cross to be able to infuse in you some grace that will enable you to build a bridge of your own works and your own righteousness to God? And one day, after a million years in purgatory, maybe you'll make it. This isn't salvation by faith alone. This isn't, as Jesus understood, it is finished. Far from finished. He should have said, I've done what I can, now the rest is up to you. Or what about half of Protestants who say Jesus' death builds a bridge and you've got to walk across it yourself. It's there, but you've got to go yourself. Well, in that sense, all he did was die to make you savable. Your salvation's there, now go and get it. Is that what he said? He didn't say it is now available. Right? He said, 
it is finished. He's built the bridge in his work. His people that are dead in trespasses and sins, he'll breathe new life in them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he'll pick you up and he will take your limping body across the bridge. He died to make sure you make it. And he carries you all the way across. It's his work, and it's his work alone. And once you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you don't need to come again and again every year. This is a Jesus that we can have faith alone in. Faith in him and in his work alone. And if you're here today and you have never come to faith in Christ, I would just say today is the day. There is not another day to to wait. There is only today. You only have today. You're only assured of today. And Jesus is here ready for you today. He's not asking you to do anything but except, except for to, to turn away from your, your former way of life and turn from your sin and to simply come to Him by faith, trusting that when He died, He did everything necessary, not only to forgive you of your sins, but to reconcile you to God and to make you persevere into eternal life. He's done it all. And his work is something that we can have faith alone in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and for what he does for us. And we confess again that there is nothing good in us that could merit salvation. So we say thank you for sending Christ and that he has accomplished everything that you sent him to do. And we can believe and we can know that it has been finished. In Jesus' name, amen.